Well, good morning. Glad you're able to be with us today. My name is James. I'm the teaching pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. If you have your Bible with you or you have a Bible app, why don't you open that up to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew right in front of you, so grab it. You're going to want that. I am just very, very excited, and I'm so thankful to the many of you who have come and either in person or on Facebook or Twitter told me how excited you are about studying the book of Galatians. If I can get out of the way of this, God is going to do some amazing things, I think, as we go through this book. It's just incredible. Letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, and we're going to dig through this for the foreseeable future, for the next several months. But before we start that, I want to ask us a question, kind of orient us. What are the things that you get really fired up about? What are the things that if somebody talked trash about that thing, it would cause you to rise up and defend it? You know, if, if you were from Texas, this would be anything anybody says about Texas. Don't mess with Texas, you know. I know, I get it, but, but what are those things for us? You know, what thing brings out the mama bear in you protecting her cubs? Because for all of us, it's probably that. It's probably family. That's a given. Somebody speaks ill of our family, we'll rush in to defend them. I get that. What is that thing? That, you know, if I was going to be a little clearer, that belief, that passion that you would rise up to preserve and defend. My family had a run-in with the flu this past month, like everybody did, I think. One of the nights we were sitting at home and taking turns running to the bathroom, there was a show on TV that I saw called What Would You Do? You ever seen this one? It's on ABC. And it's a hidden camera show. And what they do is they stage these really just reprehensible scenarios, and then they film them, and they don't tell people what they're doing. And in this one I saw, it was a situation where they'd hired a kid who had Down syndrome, an actor who had Down syndrome, to be a bagger at the end of a checkout lane at a grocery store. And then they hired another actor to come through the line and say horrible things about the kid with Down syndrome. He berated him, he belittled him, he called him names. It was, it was painful to watch, really. But a lot of the folks on camera ignored it. They, they averted their eyes or they turned away or they might have muttered under their breath, but they didn't say anything to this guy who was just abusing the Down syndrome kid. They didn't know it was staged. But there were a few folks who did engage and that was fun to watch because <laughs> they let this guy have it. They were all over him. They defended the kid with Down syndrome. And later when they found out it was set up, you know, they come and they interview him almost to a person. The ones who, who didn't stand for the atrociousness, they revealed they had a family member, they had a friend, they had a relative. They had somebody they knew with Down syndrome. And so this was like a personal attack to them. They were invested and they couldn't stomach it. This was worth fighting for. What are those things for us? What are those beliefs or passions we have that we would defend if somebody attacked it or abused it in front of us? And let me not make it that impractical. Let me ask this. Do we fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ that way? Well, that's a great background question to have in our mind as we walk through this book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia. Now, Paul is a guy who was Saul of Tarsus. He was a zealous, law-keeping Jewish guy. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he was trained by this renowned teacher named Gamaliel not to persecute Christians. But he ignored that advice. Became one of the leading first century persecutors of Christians. He would have been born right around the same time as Jesus. Without a doubt, he would have heard the stories, the miracles, the radical things Jesus was doing. And he would have seen people flock into this radical teacher and he would have been dead set against it because he wanted people to be zealous law keepers. Then Saul had a life-changing experience, and he became an eyewitness of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. You can read that story in Acts 9. And at that time, 
he received the Holy Spirit, he began a relationship with the God of the universe that in no way did he deserve or earn. He'd been persecuting Christians. And after that, he became an apostle and a church planner and a disciple maker because he was radically changed. And the message he was carrying was this incredible message of God's grace. He hadn't done anything to earn it or deserve it. He was persecuting Christians, and he was saved by grace. And that radically changed him. And so he carries that message forward. And everywhere he went, salvation is possible for anyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's all by God's grace. So after a period of around 14 years after this Damascus Road experience, Paul sets out on what would be the first of four missionary journeys over a span of about 20 years where he's just pouring out his life. He's on mission, spends quite a bit of time in prison. On that first missionary journey, Paul visits the areas that are addressed in this letter. And he shares the gospel, just as he always does with these people. The gospel of grace. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, period. Not salvation you can earn. Not salvation that we could work for or or get by keeping the Old Testament law. Just grace. That's the subject matter he pours into these people in Galatia. Grace and then the freedom in Christ that comes with it. And Paul, you know, because he had been Saul at one point in time, because he'd been zealous for keeping this law, for trying to be a good person, and he received grace that he didn't deserve, well then when he preaches it, he's ready to fight for it and defend it. It's like those people who defended the Down Syndrome kid. That's what this letter is about. And so first we have to ask then, what does that mean when we talk about God's grace? What do we mean when we say that word? Is the first thing that we think of when we hear grace just the ridiculousness of it? The audacious nature of the fact that God would offer salvation to anybody who would accept it? Because if that's your first thought, I struggle with that sometimes. I really do. I'm a big fan of the concept of grace. I like that. But then we get practical. And we say, well, if that's true, if anybody can have a relationship with God, if they'd place their faith in Jesus, well, then bad people can get into heaven. You're telling me a thief or a serial killer or a Chicago Cubs fan could become a Christian. They would just place their faith, their trust in Christ. And i got to be honest, I struggle with that. I don't totally get that. Because lots of the time, what I want is justice. I want justice before grace for other people. (laughs) For me, I want grace all the time. So I don't totally understand this. And so that's what we're going to do. I need help understanding grace. So we're going to walk through this letter together. Because it's such an important concept for us to grasp. For grace to be grace, it has to come free of charge. It has to come with no strings attached. And so I think what I've done, I think sometimes what we do in this culture is we try to lessen the impact of the word. Somehow we cheapen it a little bit, whether we mean to or not. We talk about grace and we say, well, I say grace before meals. If somebody achieves something, we congratulate them. The root of that word congratulate is grace. What do you do if somebody has you over to their house for dinner or whatever? They're, They're hospitable. You say, oh, they're so gracious. So what does that really mean to us when we talk about grace? Well, that's what I want to focus on and pray about, and hopefully grow to understand as we walk through this book. Because if you look, it's what Paul tried to make so clear. He had received grace from God through Jesus Christ, and he knew he was not going to have an eternal relationship with the God of the universe by being the best Jew he could be, by keeping all the laws. The only way to have that kind of relationship was just by accepting grace through Jesus Christ. So we need just a little background on grace before we see what Paul's teaching in Galatians where grace comes from. 
John chapter 1 and verse 17 explains it. Explains one of the big reasons why God sent Jesus to live on this world. John says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Paul got that. Paul learned that. It was, that was what was literally revealed to him in Acts 9. And so it was his mission to share it everywhere he went. He explained this grace. He does it really well in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's an important relationship between three really key words in that passage, and it's love and mercy and grace. What are those things? Well, mercy is just God's compassion for people. It's what moved God to send a Savior into this lost and broken and hurting, this fallen world we live in after sin entered through Adam and Eve. That's what mercy does. It's incredible. It's great. But mercy alone can't save us. If mercy could save us after Jesus came, he wouldn't have had to die sacrificially on the cross. So Paul mentions love here. What a huge, what an important concept. It's God's divine love for all people that motivated him to send a Savior, motivated everything he did in providing a way for salvation. But even love alone can't save us. Because of the problem of sin, he says, we're dead in our transgressions. That's a problem. Sin creates a debt that needs to be satisfied. So Christ went to the cross to make atonement for sin, to pay that debt, to provide the path to reconciliation with God. And that act... Christ's death on the cross is the thing that set God's grace free. So when we do this study, when we talk about understanding grace, that's what we're talking about. Grace is God's unearned, unmerited favor that resulted in him giving his only son to offer a way, to offer salvation to anybody who puts their faith in him. God's grace comes from his mercy and his love, no strings attached. So right after Paul explains that correlation, between mercy and grace and love in Ephesians 2, he drives his point home, in case we missed it, in verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's just a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Good works can't save me. That's not 100% true. (laughs) It was good work that saved me. It just wasn't mine. It was Jesus Christ. It was his glorious life. It was his sacrificial death. It was his resurrection to defeat and conquer death, establish a kingdom that will have no end. That's the good work that saves. Not anything I could do. Not anything we could do by being good or trying to accomplish something. And so that's what Paul taught the churches in Galatia. Turn with me there in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. I think that's the key verse of the whole book. I think if we're looking for the theme, that's where you can find it. Here's where Paul says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if that's what it takes, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Why? So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He's saying there's no string attached to this. You can't become justified by keeping the law. You can't be saved by keeping the law. And then jump down just a few verses to verse 21, and Paul reminds his readers of the incredibly important part that Jesus plays in the gospel. He says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. 
So Paul had come, and he had preached to the churches in Galatia this gospel of Jesus Christ on his first missionary journey. And he didn't leave anything out. He had all the key important concepts. God sent Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to cover our sin. Jesus rose again to prepare an eternal kingdom. He had it all in there. And then the thing that he got so upset about was people coming and trying to establish strings on that. He felt he'd left the Galatians on pretty solid ground. Then he finds out as soon as he leaves, these Judaizers come through. These false teachers who taught that you really had to become Jewish to receive salvation, or at least act like a Jew. They came right in behind him and tried to attach strings to the gospel. And so Paul gets wind of the fact that these false teachers were coming in saying, hey, that stuff Paul talked about, that's good. That's really good. I like that. But to really understand it, to really grasp what he's saying, you've got to be circumcised. Sorry, you've got to be Jewish to really get it. I, Paul must have been in a hurry. That's what he meant to say, I promise you. But, but it's really, really important. He just left that part out. So here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and we're going to study the book of Galatians. Does that seem weird to us? Or are we thinking, well, that certainly doesn't happen anymore, right? It's sad to say, but it happens all the time. Anytime there's true teaching, someone will come right along behind it with false teaching and try to confuse it or try to distort it. We see this all the time. And I'm not trying to offend anybody here today, but I'm just saying this is what we see in other belief systems. They'll come along and take the words of their authority or their instructor or their teacher, and they'll try to say, hey, you believe in the Bible? That's great, but you have to really look at it through this lens to really understand it. Christian scientists say, oh, you read the Bible? That's good. What you do, just lay the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard over that. Just call God the supreme being. And when you read your Bible, have a copy of Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy right there with you and read it and, and look at it through that lens and you'll really understand it. Mormons will come in. You believe in God? Hey, I do too. That's great. So just take the teachings of Joseph Smith and lay those over your Bible. And then get a copy of The Pearl of Great Price and read that right alongside it and then you'll understand it. Jehovah's Witnesses will say, hey, just listen to the instruction of Charles Taze Russell. And then get your Bible and read it right alongside this Watchtower Bible. And then you'll really get it. So this isn't a new thing. This is all around us, and it's meant to confuse the truth. It doesn't even have to be so outlandish on the surface. I've heard people try and preach a prosperity gospel. And they'll say, hey, just take out the verses about suffering and trials and just focus on the verses about riches. And just lay capitalism over your Bible. And then you'll really get it. We see that. That's a huge deal. So we can't take what these Judaizers are doing in Galatians and think, well, is that, is that really that big a deal? I mean, to teach that in addition to faith in Christ, you have to be circumcised? Well, yes, that becomes a huge deal because it attaches strings to Jesus Christ. Salvation then becomes Jesus plus something. Heard that phrase before, that's too good to be true? It's got to be a catch. What's the catch? There must be some string attached. I presented the gospel to people before, very intelligent people, and I think they can't get it. They can't fathom the gospel of grace because it sounds too good to be true. It's too good a deal. So they want to come and attach some strings to it. You ever heard the origin of that phrase, no strings attached? One real popular theory comes from the time before we had paper and everything was written on parchment. And so you'd write out your law or your decree or your message, whatever, and then you'd roll that parchment up and you'd tie it with what? A string. And then the idea would come, well, I'm going to go deliver that, and you'd hand it to somebody. 
But if you held on to the string, well, then you, you really didn't deliver that message. There was a catch of some kind. When we try to attach strings to the gospel message, we void grace. We nullify grace. And that is what Paul got so fired up about. Attaching strings to the gospel was his don't mess with Texas. He was going to fight for that. So next week we're going to start. We're going to jump in and look at the first five verses of chapter 1. That's Paul's introduction. And we'll set the stage and the context a little bit more. But right after that brief introduction, Paul just starts blasting the Galatians. (laughs) Because these false teachers had come along and they'd tied these strings to the gospel and the Galatians were buying into it. And so Paul gets hopping mad. Look at chapter 1. In verses 6 and 7, this is where he writes, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another at all. They're just tying strings to it. Only there are some who are disturbing you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, Paul had come and he'd given the gospel. He'd given these folks the truth. He'd given them instructions for how to receive salvation. Now somebody's coming along right behind him and confusing the directions. I heard a story one time about a young woman with an infant child. She was going to ride the train. This is over 100 years ago, 19, early 1900s. First time she'd ever ridden the train. It was a Christmas holiday. She's in New York. She's going to get on the train, and it's a blizzard, just whiteout conditions. You can't even see anything in front of you. First time she traveled on the train, very, very nervous about where she's going to get off, where her stop is, real tentative. And so she gets on the train with her little baby, and she makes a special point to go to the conductor and say, hey, This is my first time doing this. Would you be so kind as to come tell me before my stop comes up so I can get ready? I really really don't want to miss it. And the conductor assures her that he will, and he leaves. Well, there's a guy sitting across the aisle from her, and he goes, oh, the conductor, you know, he'll probably get busy. I've ridden this route so many times before. It's okay. I'll help you. I'll just count the number of stops. I know we can't see anything out the window. I'll count the number of stops, and when we get to your stop, I'll help you off. So they ride along on the train, and he's counting the number of stops, and eventually, after a good period of time, he says, okay, this next stop, it's going to be yours. And so he gets up, and he helps her. He's so kind. Gathers all her stuff. She carries her baby. They go, and he lets her off the train. He goes back and gets his seat, and the train starts up again. Probably 10, 15 minutes later, the conductor comes. The conductor looks around. He says, where's the young lady and her child? And the guy goes, oh, I knew you'd get busy and forget her. It's okay. I counted the number of stops. I let her off at the last stop. Blood just drains out of the conductor's face. He says, what have you done? Because of the blizzard, we had to make several emergency stops. That wasn't a stop. You've left that poor woman out in the middle of nowhere. So they stop the train, which takes some time. And they reverse the train and they go back. But at that point in time, it's too late. This young lady and her child had frozen to death out in the middle of nowhere. How clear are we on the instructions we're giving? Given the right instructions is critically important when it comes to matters of life and death, how much more so matter of eternal life or eternal separation from God? We always need to proclaim a true gospel message. And even when somebody comes along and thinks they're being helpful, but they're offering a false gospel, We need to be ready to defend the truth. That's what Paul does here in Galatians. This letter's been divided into six chapters. The first two deal just with that, defending the gospel of grace. Chapters 3 and 4, they're pretty doctrinal. They accurately explain grace. 
And then as he does in all of his letters, and I, Paul's a hero of mine for this, chapters 5 and 6, he helps the readers understand how do you apply the gospel of grace in our lives. Galatians is a great letter. I'm so excited about studying. It's gotten a lot of good press. I've heard it referred to before as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty because Paul is so careful to teach Christ followers that we're no longer under the bondage of legalism or law-keeping, but instead in Christ we have liberty. So we'll examine what that means in depth. This letter has also been called the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because it was the book that captivated Martin Luther one of the fathers of the Reformation. Luther was drawn to the letter, couldn't get over it because of the audacious nature of grace, because of that treatment of Christian liberty. Luther, in fact, loved the letter so much that he called it his wife, which makes you wonder what his actual wife, Catherine, thought of the book, but I'm sure he, I'm sure he made that comment before he was married. So this is a great book. It deals with all these important concepts of grace and liberty and avoiding legalism. And Paul's careful in Scripture to expose legalism. And yet he doesn't throw it out. He always explains the law does have a place in our lives. We're not allowed to just take the gospel of grace and say, well, that means we can throw out all the rule keeping. We can't say, well, I can do whatever I want because I have liberty. That's way too far a stretch. Paul explains the law does have a function in our lives. The law is necessary because it declares our guilt. If we break the law, we understand we're guilty. And when that happens as Christ followers, that should be the thing that points us towards obedience, that points us towards a life of abundance. But there's one huge area where the law falls short. It's the same area where mercy falls short. It's the same area where love falls short. The law can't save us. Grace alone is what saves us. And so Paul gets frustrated with the Galatians because they're so quickly willing to accept and tie those strings on the gospel keeping Jewish customs. That was an issue back then. That's applicable today. Because in our lives today, anytime, anytime we try to add something to the salvation of grace through faith, and we say, well, it's that. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus plus this thing, being a good person. It's, it's for sure that. It's salvation in faith in Jesus and serving in the nursery. You know, or, or whatever thing it is. When we do that, we may not even mean to, but it shows we don't understand grace. And consequently, what we do, without meaning to, I think, sometimes, we deny Christ. We end up neglecting faith. We cheapen grace if we have to add anything to it. If we have to add to faith some ceremony like circumcision. If we have to add to faith anything, even like the ordinances. We're so big on baptism and the Lord's Supper here. I truly believe those two ordinances are important in the lives of Christ followers. We're supposed to engage in those. They're commanded by Jesus for his church. They point us to the cross. But we're supposed to do it as a fruit of obedience in our lives, not as a requirement for salvation. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, they remind us of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. Those are good things. But if we take and elevate those to the point where we say, well, you've got to do those to be saved, then what we've really done is we've denied Christ. When we attach a string even like that, anything alongside the work of Christ, something you'd have to do or something you'd have to believe, then we take the power out of what Jesus did. And then our faith's not really in him, it's in some other thing. To get this right, and we'll spend time with this, we have to really understand and be able to know how to share the true gospel. Paul hammers this out early in the letter. And this is hugely important for us, for every Christ follower. Can we explain the gospel? Can we tell someone, here's what happens. 
Here's what has to happen for you to be saved. I don't want to burst any bubbles on this. I just want to be clear. Inviting Jesus into your heart is not a biblical requirement for salvation. I think sometimes in our attempts to make the gospel clear, we actually can muddy it up. Inviting Jesus into your heart is a great metaphor that describes what happens when a person places their trust in Jesus. It describes what being new in Christ means, but it's not a requirement for salvation. Now, here's the great thing, and this is why we open the Bible together every week. We don't have to wonder about what the gospel is. Paul tells us very, very clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, what? The gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, get this, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, here it is, pay attention, as of first importance, what I also received on the Damascus road, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. And then he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's it. That historical fact that God loved us so much that he took mercy on us. And he solved our sin problem by sending his son to take our place on the cross to cover our sin. And then Jesus rose again. He defeated and conquered sin and death. And the part that Paul goes on to explain so well in the epistles, it's not abundantly clear in this verse, but but the thing that he makes so clear is if you hear that, we need to have some kind of response to that kind of grace. When we hear the greatest good news of all time, we seriously can't just go, eh, so what? (laughs) So, So what you're telling me is I deserved death from my sin, but instead, God's going to offer me this incredible grace. Eh, big deal. Are we okay with that? Paul wasn't okay with that. That's what Paul is writing about, and it's what he's willing to fight for and defend and explain is this gospel of salvation by grace through faith. It's what we're going to try and wrap our minds around together as we study. Paul tackles another great practical issue as well in Galatians. He attempts to help the Galatian Christ followers, and I think help us, understand grace from a little different viewpoint as well. And it's from the standpoint of trying to switch horses in midstream. Paul warns us against this notion of thinking, okay, I got it. I'm a Christ follower. I was saved by grace. That's great. But then assuming that the only way to grow is through legalism or keeping the law. The only way to be sanctified is by doing stuff, by attaching strings. I think that's a struggle for a lot of us. We say, well, spiritual growth, that must come by observing rites and ceremonies or going on a missions trip or tithing or something like that. Well, here's the reality in that regard. And remember, those things aren't bad things. Those things are good things. Those things are valuable things. The idea of publicly identifying with Jesus through baptism in front of a church, that's a good thing. The idea of serving, going on a missions trip or whatever, that's a good thing. The idea of sacrificially giving, being a good steward, every time that's mentioned in Scripture, it's called worship. That's a good thing. The only thing that makes those bad things is if we try to elevate them beyond where they fit as fruit of salvation, not requirements for salvation. So Paul specifically addresses this notion, and again, he gets pretty hot with the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, are you so foolish, he says? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's saying, if you began your relationship with God by God's grace, since that's how a Christ follower receives the Holy Spirit, well, then why would you then think 
that you can be perfected, you could somehow achieve God's goals in your own flesh. That verse makes me think about a process of salvation. And I want to take a minute and be really clear on this because in the Bible we hear Paul use words like that. He uses words like glorification and justification and salvation. He talks about being saved by grace. And maybe we've never really stopped to ask, are there differences in all those terms? Because Paul's reminding the Galatians, you didn't do anything to earn your salvation. So why would you think then you could earn God's favor or sanctification through works? If we, if we struggle with that concept, it's probably helpful to think of salvation as having stages. I've heard it referred to before as positional salvation, and then progressive salvation, and then perfect salvation. There's big theological terms that go along with that. The idea of justification and sanctification and glorification. And Paul's really clear on this. Every time he explains it throughout his letters, we've got nothing to do with the first stage and the last stage. Stage one is justification or positional salvation. That's all God. Justification is actually a judicial word. It just means God's made a decision. That occurs at a moment in time. It's an event, and it occurs the moment we place our faith and trust in him. That's what happens. We can't do anything to earn that. That's the moment that God makes it possible for us to have a relationship with him. We can't earn the decision. All we have to do to have God rule in our favor is to respond to grace with faith in Jesus. I had a seminary professor one time gave me a great illustration for this. I'm going to share it with you free of charge. Somebody here in the church had to pay a lot of money for me to go to that class, but I'm going to give it away. No strings attached. He said, the best picture of faith is just an outstretched hand receiving a gift. That's not work. That's a response. If somebody comes and gives you a gift, what do you do? You stick out your hands. That's how you receive a gift. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. It's not human effort to earn a gift. It's just a response. And when we're talking about that first stage, justification, the gift is salvation that God graciously gives. He freely gives. Justification is all God. You can't earn it. Then the third step is glorification or perfect salvation. That's all God too. That happens when we die or when the rapture occurs and Jesus comes back for his church. Whichever comes first. Selfishly, I'm rooting for the rapture. I'll find out someday, I guarantee. But that'll be in a, a moment. That's an event will be transformed. So you have those stages of salvation. Stage one's justification. That's all God. He renders a verdict in our favor because of grace. Stage three's glorification. That's all God. We'll spend eternity with him eventually in our glorified bodies. But the part that's tricky for us, I know, and the part that was tricky for the Galatians is in that middle stage because it's regarding the liberty that comes from God's grace. That middle stage that we sometimes call progressive salvation because this is where as christ followers we're still here we're stuck on the earth after we respond to grace with faith we don't get whisked up to heaven we stay down here as fallen people in a fallen world and as we do we're working with god we're empowered by the indwelling holy spirit in the process of growing of becoming more christ-like hopefully of, of turning our back and, and moving further and further away from these things that have plagued us, the sins we struggle with, the hindrances, the frustrations that hold us back. That middle stage is a joint process, and what we're supposed to do is lean in 
and trust God and obey him and walk with the Holy Spirit. And Paul clearly explains this to the Galatians. That's what liberty is. It's the freedom in that stage to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. It's truly the liberty we have to obey God. It's not a license to disobey Him. If we as Christ followers walk in the Spirit, we'll display the fruit of the Spirit. Paul describes in chapter 5. We'll show evidence of our salvation. We'll become more Christ-like. That's the idea behind sanctification. We don't get more saved. Let me be so clear on that. We can't be any more saved than we were the moment we placed our faith in Christ. The big problem, honestly, with stage two is sometimes we stick around for a really long time. Sometimes we accept Christ, we're we're young, and we stay here for a long, long time. And the idea is every day that we're here, after we begin our relationship with the Lord, every day we're supposed to die to ourselves. And when we don't, when we disobey God, when we sin, then there's going to be consequences. Now, here's another thing that Paul is very clear on in Scripture. When that happens, we don't lose our salvation. We didn't do anything to earn it. How can we do anything to lose it? It's grace. But the reality is when we're disobedient, there's going to be consequences in our lives. And so the consequences we experience in relation to sanctification is hard to wrap our mind around. And it's this. We won't end up being as godly as God wants us to become. God doesn't get everything he wants. He wants us to become so Christ-like But the problem is, after we profess faith in Christ, we're disobedient. We don't end up as Christ-like as God has made it possible for us to become by giving us the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. Becoming Christ-like, that process of salvation, it's a process we're going to struggle with because we're going to struggle with temptation. Because we're going to struggle with sinfulness. It's because our human nature has been corrupted by sin. Every aspect of our personalities has been affected by sin. That's what the term total depravity means. But even though this is so, the thing Paul is trying to get the Galatians to see, and I'm sure God wants us to see, is just because we can't lose our salvation doesn't mean we should rush out to sin. Because of this gospel of grace, because of the fact that Jesus rescued us from sin, if we're Christ followers, then we have the power through the Holy Spirit. Paul would say we have the liberty not to sin. We have the freedom to obey God and grow in our sanctification process. And believe me, I I know why we struggle with this. I speak from experience here. That growth process is hard. But even when it's hard, it's better. It's, It's so much better than being a slave to sin. I lived mired in sin for 26 years before I even began to sniff the gospel of grace. And almost that entire time, I was seeking and I was searching for love and joy and peace, but I was seeking for them in things that had no chance of offering love and joy and peace. And then, by God's grace, it stuck out my hand. And I accepted this gift. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And now I have abundant life. That's not always easy life. I still struggle with sin and with temptation. I have an addictive personality. I still struggle with my love of Diet Coke and peanut butter. I get that. But the difference between that old life, when I was always looking for the next rush, and this new life in Christ, 
where I walk in step with the Holy Spirit. I hang out with the God who loves me and gave himself up for me and desires the very best for me. There's no contest between those two things. So if you're here today and you've never responded to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've never responded to hearing the story of grace, then you can make that decision right now to just stretch out your hand and receive the salvation, receive the relationship with God that he desires to have with you. If you do that today, please tell somebody, come tell me, because we're going to want to pray with you and encourage you in that walk. As Christ followers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to make progress in our salvation. And then there'll be setbacks. We don't keep in step with the Spirit, but we don't lose our salvation once we accept that gift. Because stage three is going to happen. We're going to die, or Jesus is going to come back, and then we'll be glorified. We'll be perfectly sanctified. That's what's going to happen. So that's an overview of the book of Galatians. It's just Paul trying to help first century Christ followers understand grace. And so that's what we're going to do for the next several months. And to close, I want to tell you one story just to remind us of this overall theme of the book, the idea that we can't be good enough to earn salvation on our own. One time a guy did die, and of course he appeared before Peter there at the pearly gates. Why is it always Peter at the pearly gates? Does Paul never get a chance at the gates? James the lesser guard the day every third Thursday or something? But it doesn't matter. He shows up at the heavenly gates, and there's Peter. And Peter asks him a question, why should you be allowed to go into heaven? And the guy says, well, you know, I was a pretty good person down there on earth. I did more good than bad. And Peter said, anything else? The guy thought for a second. He said, well, you know, I was really generous. I made a lot of money, and, and I gave a lot of it away. I supported philanthropic causes, and I gave to some nonprofits. And remember one time I bought some donuts from somebody who was going to church camp. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. Peter says, anything else? Guy's thinking. He's like, well, you know, there was an elderly lady who lives in our neighborhood. Sometimes I mowed her grass. You know, I did some service projects. Peter says, anything else? Guy says, well, I don't kick cats. You know, I coach Little League Baseball. Well, you know, and he starts going through all these things. And everything he comes up with, Peter goes, anything else? And finally, just out of frustration, our guy just basically shouts. And he says, what is it going to take? For me to get in there, the grace of God? He says, exactly. No strings attached. And have the opportunity to take communion today, not as a requirement for salvation, but as a fruit, as obedience, because Christ commands that when we do this, we stop and remember how much God loves us, the mercy he poured out on us, what Christ accomplished on the cross. We remember that in the death and the burial and resurrection. The scripture says when we do it, we take the time to examine our hearts, confess our sins, be right with him. If you're a visitor here, if it's one of your first times, certainly take the communion elements. This is the Lord's Supper. It's not Cape Bible Chapel Supper. The elements are out here on the tables all around the room. Ryan's going to come. He's going to play some music. And so you'll have some time to do that. Commune with the Lord. Examine your heart. Then he's going to come up and and, and play a song, and Dan's going to come and give some announcements. But let me pray for the bread and the cup. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this chance to dive into your word. God, be with us. Help me to get out of the way as we walk through this book of Galatians. God, teach us the things you would have us learn so we can be the kind of individual Christ followers you want us to be, so we can be the kind of church that you want us to be. God, help us to be a local church 
that understands grace, that shows grace. I've heard people who were struggling before say, why would I go to the church? I already feel bad about myself. God, help them to come to the church to receive grace that we would know and understand and be able to apply it in our lives. God, as we even spend this time examining our heart, help us to, to wrestle with how love and mercy and grace work together because you're so good. God, we love you. We lift this time to you. Just ask all those things. In Jesus' name, amen.